So we are finishing a group of sermons that we started several weeks ago called Counterculture. And the idea really is, how should we as believers in Jesus Christ, how should we interact with the culture around us and how should we fight for, stand for things that we believe? And some of that means, well, what do we believe? We have to figure that out as well. And so today we're going to talk about a subject that we mentioned the first time we, we started this series, that it was coming and it kind of got pushed out. And since then, things have happened that have made this even more kind of relevant. We're going to talk about human sexuality and how we understand it, what we see in it, what's good, what's not good, what's right, what's wrong. And then ask the question, OK, how do we respond to the culture in which we live? And here's the thing. It has been an interesting summer when it comes to the topic of human sexuality. Right. I mean, in the culture at large, it's been an interesting summer uh, started. We were in Los Angeles when the Supreme Court decision came down. But the Supreme Court um, put out a decision that uh, same sex marriage was now to be legal all across the land. And scenes like this, we got a picture, I think. It seems like this were all over with the rainbow flags in front of the Supreme Court. And it wasn't a surprising decision for those people that have been watching the court and been listening to the court. Um, it really started even two or three years ago when the court um, knocked down the Defense of Marriage Act and, and uh, sent Prop 8 back to the courts in California. And so most people knew that it was kind of coming, but it was still a uh, it is a major moment in U.S. history, no matter what side you're on uh, in that kind of debate that the United States recognized same-sex marriage nationwide as something that is good and right and legal, according to the government. And then, uh, at the annual ESPY Awards, perhaps the most made-up award show in history, but there was a significant moment there when the Arthur Ashe Courage Award was given to a guy that when I was growing up was on Wheaties boxes. Y'all know what Wheaties are? Y'all know? How many of you ever eaten Wheaties? They're nasty. They're terrible. Why are you, why are you eating Wheaties? Like when I grew up, I thought, man, I'm going to eat my Wheaties. going to be like an Olympic athlete, right? And you, you take them. Man, it was terrible. But so they gave the award to this person, right? Who is Bruce Jenner once, uh, in 1976 won the decathlon greatest athlete on the face of the earth who is in the midst of transforming into Caitlyn Jenner, a female. And the world was almost astonishing that the moment for transgenderism has arrived. The world applauded it, excited about it. And then this week, a website that Apparently, lots of people use, 30 million people use, got hacked. And it leaked the names of most, if not all, of those 30 million customers who went on a website that sole purpose was to find people for extramarital affairs. Ashley Madison website. Leaks, let me just tell you, the carnage from that is... Not done in any way. As names and people and leaders are revealed. And so we've had the Ashley Madison um, scandal this week. And in the midst of all that, as Christians, you go, how did we get here? 
Anybody ever feel that way? Like you, I'm, I'm, I know that I told that in the first service, I'm, I'm the young one in a lot of ways. We have people that are younger than me, but pri- primarily I'm the young one. In this service, I'm pr- progressively becoming in the older group. All right. And so, but I'm still, I'm, I'm, you know, so I don't want to sound like back in my day, but back in my day, you know, this was, this, these three things were really unthinkable. Not that, not that there weren't homosexual behaviors, even from people in high school that I knew, not that transgenderism wasn't out there, and not that people weren't having extramarital affairs. That was happening. But the public nature of it was not. You ask the question, so, okay, how do we get here? Better, worse, this is, we're not to the sermon yet, so better or worse, how do we get here? And it really goes back to a group of people we talked about two or three weeks ago. Anybody remember these folks right here? Right? None of y'all admitted to being hippies in this service. Dirk Wiley did in the first. We're blaming all this on Dirk, all right? We got the hippies, right? What were the hippies, besides being counterculture, what were they particularly counterculture about? What are they known for starting? The free love, right? Sexual revolution is the kind of technical term. And their whole idea was that you could ought to be able to love whoever you want to love, however you want to love, wherever you want to love, whenever you want to love. Just free, all right? It was kind of their philosophy of life in general. Just be free as a bird. Fly around, just enjoy life, right? Problem is, we're not birds, we're people. And so they started this revolution that seemed in the 1960s just to be a bunch of kids that were mad about the Vietnam War. But the sexual revolution spoke to the desire which in every person has to fulfill their own desires. This is what Pastor Mark Dever says about the sexual revolution. I think we got the quote. The most important revolution of the 20th century was the sexual revolution. Contraception replaced conception. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. It was as if license was given out, legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. And since that time, since, as Mark Dever talked about, the sexual revolution happened, divorce, remarriage, abortion, premarital sex, extramarital sex, Homosexuality has been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. Pornography is a billion dollar industry. And the thing is, it's not just a problem out there. We'll talk about this more in a minute. Many churches have members plagued by failed marriages, illicit affairs, private sins that turn into public disgraces. Some of whom we know and some of whom we don't know yet. What's interesting is, Dever said that the 20th century, the most important revolution, was the sexual revolution. But what we're seeing in the 21st century is the results of the sexual revolution that happened then. The sexual revolution has happened. It's not happening. It's happened. And we are seeing the effects of it. We talked about sex trafficking last week. And just like, that's a $58 billion industry worldwide. Pornography is an industry that will make $13 billion in the United States this year. And at this moment, every second that I'm talking, every second that we are living, there is $3,000 spent on pornography every second in this country. And there are 28,000 Internet users looking at pornography right now. 
It's all over the place. It's in our stores. It's in our songs. It's on our billboards. It's on our televisions. It's in movies. It's on our phones. It's in magazines. It's on Facebook and Instagram. We are so inundated and surrounded by the sexualized culture in which we live, we no longer even recognize that it's there. There's a pastor who's written really well on this issue in a couple of places, a guy named Kevin DeYoung. And Kevin DeYoung has this quote um, in a book he called The Hole in Our Holiness. And he says this, this is not about the culture out there either. It's about those of us here, about what we as Christians are doing, what we are seeing, what we may not know we are doing and seeing. I'm afraid we, including I, don't have the eyes to see how much the world has squeezed us into its mold. He continues saying this. If we could transport a Christian from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them the most, aside from the fact that we are filthy rich, and we've talked about that, right? That we have more money than any Christians have ever had in the history of the world. Is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciousness. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual impurity seems normal. A way of life. And downright entertaining. And here's the problem, all right? We are so inundated by the culture that we don't even realize that we have given ground on God's best. And here's what I'm really afraid of. And we're going to talk about this today. And I just want to go ahead and let you know, get comfortable. We're going to be here a few minutes. All right. We got a lot of work to do. We got about an hour and a half worth of work to do today. OK, we're not going to be here an hour and a half. And all God's people said, amen. All right. But we're going to do it quickly. We're going to do it faster than that. But we got lots to unpack Because what I want to do is I want to show this. I want to show that God has a better way. And I think we've lost the narrative in our culture. Because in our culture, people don't see Christians as being the people that declare God has a better way. They see Christians as the people saying, don't. Quit. Stop. You're an abomination. You're horrible. You're terrible. Quit. When God's word, yes, it is all this stuff that we aren't supposed to do. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it tells us not to do that because there's a better way. And we've somehow lost this whole point that God knows what's best for us and intends for us to have the better way. And so what I want to do today is I want to do a couple of things. I want to, first of all, just give a biblical understanding of what the better way is. All right. We're going to talk about that, frankly, and we're going to use we're going to talk about what God intended and we're going to do that. What God intended, the better way. We're going to talk about what messed that up and how we can be retrieved from that. And then the second thing I want to do is to say, OK, then how do we react to everything we see? OK, so I want to do two things. The second thing will be shorter than the first thing, but they're both not going to be short. You got it? Are you, are you here? You got it? You're like, what in the world are we doing here today? All right, we're going to plow through that. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you've brought them, I hope you brought them, because we're going to look at a couple of places. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm already sweating. I don't know if it's the lights or just the way that you're looking at me right now, but we're, we're going, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, let me just tell you that we are not the first culture that has ever had problems with sexual stuff. Okay, I know that it seems like you're just shocked, but listen, in Corinth, (laughs) that Paul's writing to Corinth, they were messed up like the culture was 
a mess. This was part of their culture. Okay. In order to be a good worshiper in some of their churches, now, not their Christian churches, but churches, you get the idea that like worship houses other than Christian. In order to be a good worshiper, you had to come in, you had to chant some stuff, you had to sing some stuff, you had to give your offering. All that sounds normal, right? And then you had to go into the back room with a prostitute and have sex. I mean, so much so that Paul is going to have to say, you realize that's not right. <laughs> like, that's messed up, right? If you don't think that's messed up, you are messed up. All right. Like that is crazy. I mean, in this church, we've talked about this before. There was a, a, a stepmom and a stepson living together out of wedlock into an affair and coming to church and telling everybody they were doing it. And the church is like, oh, awesome. Good for y'all. Oh, that, that makes you happy. I'm glad about that. They're like, no. Paul's like, that. Paul's like that's, that's not okay. And so Paul is addressing a group of people that are they're, they're deviant. Sexually, anything went in Corinth. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And it was that kind of philosophy. And Paul's writing to that group of people. And he says this starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Now, let me just clarify something for you real quickly. Do, you, do y'all see these things right here? Do you know what that's called? Anybody? Y'all back in school, right? What are, what are these called right here? Quotation marks, right? Now, when you are in our society making a sarcastic joke about something, sometimes people use what we call them air quotes, right? This is Paul using air quotes, all right? Now, I don't think when he was talking, he actually used air quotes because that would be kind of crazy, but that's a long time ago. What he's saying is this is something you say. Paul is not saying all things are lawful for me. The Corinthians, one of their sayings were like, hey, all things are awful for me. I've been saved. I got grace. I ain't got to worry about anything. I can do whatever I want. Do y'all get Paul's not saying that's okay? Y'all get that? Just nod your head if you get it. All right. Because what he's saying is you say all things are lawful for me. And he says, but not all things are helpful. You say that all things are lawful for me, but... I will not be dominated by anything. And this is what Paul says, all right? And we, this is vital for us to understand. He says, yes, if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, if you have been saved by his grace, if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, there is nothing that you can do that is going to undo Jesus' blood on your life. You can't undo salvation. That's what he's saying here. But that doesn't mean it's good. Right? You, you understand that concept, right? Like, I can do, I could go eat two Domino's pizzas right now. I, I could. It's not against the law. That would be very bad for me. On many levels. Amen? Right? Like, lots of levels. It doesn't mean it's good. Paul says, listen, and the sexual stuff. Listen, the scripture is very clear about this. There is nothing that can control your life. That can dominate your life. That become your master like money and sex. And Paul says, it may be lawful, but that doesn't mean it's good. And it doesn't mean I want it controlling my life. And then he says this, and we're just going to forget this next time we have a men's fellowship thing. All right. Where we meet all the time because he says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. What they would say is, listen, God gave us food and he gave us a stomach to eat it. He wants us to enjoy it as much as we can. 
I'm glad none of you meant amen there because that's not what Paul says. He says, listen, God's going to destroy both. <laughs> it's temporal stuff. This, you're putting your pleasure. What Paul's saying is, by doing this sexual stuff outside of marriage, we'll talk about that in a minute because he comes with that, doing sexual stuff outside of marriage, you are giving yourself and being controlled by stuff that will fade away. He goes on to say this. The body, our body, your body, my body, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. We'll come back to that in a minute. That's a huge statement that is countercultural in every way to what we talk about in our society. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up. He's saying, listen, your body will come back in a new form that Jesus will raise. And so you use it for the glory of God. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? He's, he's got to tell him not to go sleep with prostitutes. It's a messed up place. Amen? And what he says to them, now think about this for a minute, because the biggest thing that people sometimes rationalize their sexual sin is this. It's just between two consenting adults. It doesn't impact anybody else. This doesn't impact. It's just a private thing. Privacy of our own bedroom or home. Why do you care? Get this picture. Okay, this is this is supernatural picture, but you got to get it. He says, when you join your body to a prostitute, when your bodies are joined together, you are joining her in her prostitution to the body of Christ. Now, let me just say, ask you this question, okay? The biblical scholars out there, what is the body of Christ in the New Testament? What is it? The church. You know why it's the church's business? It's because when you go sleep with a prostitute, you're adding a prostitute into the body of Christ, which is us. How you use your body when you become a believer impacts the church. Not like just us, like the church. That's what he's saying here. Do you not know that when you join, you're, you're joining. Remember that whole leave and cleave in Genesis? They become one flesh. We'll talk about that more in a minute. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own. Or do you not know that your body, this is one of those places we talked about before, we need the southern translation of the Bible, right? Because what that says is, don't you know that y'all's body, okay, like all uh, your church, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's what I want to do. I want to take that passage of Scripture. I want to look at a couple of things from it. And I just want us to remember, remember what this is all about. And there's a passage in there that gives the only real command in that whole section of Scripture. And it is vitally important. And this is the command. The command is to flee sexual immorality. To flee sexual immorality. 
The whole point of this sermon, if you will, is wrapped up in those three words. Flee sexual immorality. And the question is, okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what is sexual immorality? Because if you ask our culture what sexual immorality is, that standard is way low. Right? I mean, it's hard now to think of things that they tell you are sexually immoral in our culture. Right? Are you here? Are you still here? Like, it's low. Like, they still, uh, rape and incest are still on that list. And animals are still on that list, which, that's in the Bible too. And that's it. Right? I can't think of really anything else that would be on that list. But what is it according to Paul? That's the question, right? It's interesting because the word for sexual immorality in the New Testament is the word porneia. Okay? I know y'all get excited when we talk about Greek. Porneia. What is the first part of porneia? Porn, right? That's where we get pornography from, the name pornography. And this is what it means, all right? In the New Testament, here is, I'll give you all the things that the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us are considered porneia. And this isn't just in the Bible. This was in their culture at large. And so porneia was any sex outside of marriage, any sex used in a worship setting, prostitution, sex among family members, homosexuality, lust, According to Jesus, even if you think it in your mind and dwell on it, it's sin. Immodesty that causes people to look at you with sexual tendencies. Allurement where you are trying to get someone to come into a sexual relationship. Joking coarsely about relationships outside of marriage. Looking or touching outside of the marriage relationship. What Paul is really saying here, see, we see sexual immorality and we can make up our own list of what that means. But this is what Paul means. Paul means flee all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. All. I mentioned Kevin DeYoung a minute ago and he, he said, if you want to know what the word pornea is, this is what he says. He says, the simplest way to understand Pornea is to think about the things that would make you furious and heartbroken if you found out someone was doing them with your husband or wife. If someone shook your wife's hand, that may not be a big deal. Or in some cultures, gave a kiss on the cheek. But if you found out another person had sex with your wife, that is infuriating. Or making gestures. Or making advances. That's pornea. And what Paul says is we were to flee all. You know what the word all means, right? All. Sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And here's the reason why. Two reasons from directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the first reason is this, is because God created our bodies for His glory. You were created by and for God. And what he says in that passage of Scripture, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whatever you give your body towards, you are involving your God in. God created our bodies for His glory. It says that, right? For your body is for God. It is not your own. Now listen, 
That is as countercultural as you could say in our society. Your body does not belong to you. The decisions you make about your body are not determined solely by you. The decisions you make about what happens to your body and what you do with your body are not your personal, private decisions that nobody else has to worry about. It says in Scripture that our bodies are purchased, bought by God, and they are for His glory. And here's the second reason. is not only did God create our bodies for His glory, but God created sex for our good. It says in that same passage of Scripture, right, that that our bodies are created for God and God for our bodies. Here's what that means. That means that God deeply cares about you and wants you to be completely fulfilled, and He knows the best way to do that. We think we got a good idea, and we run after the desires of our heart, and then we find out that's not what God intended, and we find ourselves in a place that we never intended to be. Have you ever really wanted something in your life? Don't, don't think about necessarily the sermon topic, just in general. you ever wanted something in your life and then you got it and were disappointed? Anybody ever, let me see, anybody ever, like, good, 20 of you were disappointed. Everybody, everything you've ever gotten in life has been great. When I was a kid, the Christmas came when the biggest toy was Transformers. Like the original Transformers, not whatever they've done to it now. Like the good days, right? Back, back in my day, that good days, right? And that year, I asked for four Transformers for Christmas, and that was it. Optimus Prime, Megatron, when he was a gun. They wouldn't even sell that today. Megatron, y'all know that? He was a gun originally, he transformed. Bumblebee and Soundwave. That's who I asked for. Okay? And I got Optimus Prime. Opened it up on Christmas morning. Woo! It's unbelievable. Like, I'm going to have... Years of playing enjoyment with my Optimus Prime truck, right? Took it out of the box, transformed it once, transformed it twice. On the third time, went, and the leg was in my hand, and the rest of the truck is in the other hand. Done, broke. So I did what any kid would do. I boxed it back up, took it upstairs to my brother, said, hey, can you transform this for me? And when Brian went to transform the leg, what did you do to my Optimus Prime? Right? That was not very nice, was it? But it was effective. Um, but I, I didn't play with Optimus at all because I broke him. And I, I, I had waited. You remember when, when you were a kid, you remember how long Christmas was? Man, I'd waited for months. I saw it in the Sears Big Book catalog. And I had I'd wanted it for months. And I got it and it disappointed me. Can I tell you something about the church? One of the things that I know about the sexual revolution is that it is not going to be able to deliver on its promises. And we as a church have to be ready and prepared to minister to the refugees of the sexual revolution, many of whom will be in our own churches. God desires. I mean, God God created us. He knows us. And He desires for us to see the better way. And the better way is this, is that sex happens inside of a committed covenantal marriage relationship. It's relational. There is no such thing as casual sex. None. The generation that's just below mine, the millennial generation, has been titled the hookup generation because they believe that just to fulfill sexual desires, you have one night stands, you do this, you go out there and you you meet a guy and 
you're safe about it, but you just have a one night stand and nobody's ever hurt. And they have a Greek word for that. It's baloney, right? Like that, it's relational. It's more than the mechanics of an action that happens. There is something that happens. Even people who are not believers have to admit there is something different that happens in the sexual relationship than all other contact. Genesis 2.24 says it, that we become one flesh. That when you encounter someone and are involved in sexual relationship with them, you are giving part of yourself to them. It's covenantal. It's supposed to be in the confines of marriage. Malachi 2.14, Proverbs 5 tells us that it's supposed to be in the midst of that. It's intimate physically, spiritually, mentally. It is an act that can only rightfully occur between a man and woman in marriage. It's fruitful. It's the way God intended for us to have kids. Throughout Scripture, that's a primary purpose of it. It's selfless. It's looking after your partner instead of yourself. It's trying to fulfill them and in doing so, seeing God's best in your life. And it's complementary. I heard a preacher say, you know, um, I hope I'm not giving you new information here today. but Maybe I am. But men and women are created different. Do y'all, y'all know that? You know, y'all, like, there's differences. Uh, y'all, okay. I heard a preacher one time say that it's not like God created man and woman and then went down and got a ham sandwich and came back and said, what in the world are they doing? Like, yeah, some of y'all get that at lunch, all right? Like, like, like God intended this as a man. And I told you PG-13, all right? As a man and woman, they complement one another physically. Now, this is a part of a reason now. It's not the only reason. In fact, if you want to look throughout Scripture, there is plenty of evidence, lots of places, that God makes it crystal clear that the only place to have sexual relationships is in a marriage between a husband and a wife. A serious student of Scripture cannot walk away with anything other than the conclusion that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. You can't. To do that, in seminary we used to have a term for people that tried to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. You have to do hermeneutical gymnastics. You've got to make things say things they never intended to say. Now, if you want to argue for same-sex relationships outside of the Bible, you can make arguments outside of the Bible, but you cannot come away from the Bible with any other idea than the homosexuality is a sin in the eyes of God. That's the Bible. And part of the reason is this. God created male and female to be complementary. And God looks at us. One of my favorite quotes is C.S. Lewis, who says that that oftentimes God looks at us and, and he's got this amazing idea of what sex ought to be. And he sees us fooling around with each other and stuff that we shouldn't be fooling around with. And we're like kids making mud pies when he's offering us a cruise at sea. And the reason... That sexual immorality is such a big deal is because every time you give yourself sexually to somebody else other than your husband or wife in marriage, either during marriage, outside of marriage, anytime you're looking at stuff on the Internet, anytime you are involved in flirting or, um, you know, 
casual conversation that feels more than that. Whenever you're in the midst of that, you are chipping away at God's best for the sexual relationship and relationship in general that you ought to have within a marriage. And that doesn't just happen when you get married. You lay the foundation for that all the way up to and through your marriage. And that's why it's a big deal. And so the question is, then what happened? If that's God's ideal, what happened? And the answer to that is real simple. Real simple. Um, one of my favorite shows growing up with my dad watching was Andy Griffith's show. Anybody here ever watch Andy Griffith? How many of you have never seen the Andy Griffith show? We're going to have a watching party soon, all right? Great show, right? One of my favorite, one of my favorite episodes is uh, they're in church and uh, Barney falls asleep in church on Sunday morning during the sermon. I know that's foreign to all of y'all, but he falls asleep during church on Sunday morning. And as he's coming out the door, the pastor who, like me, sees everybody that falls asleep on church on Sunday morning, says, Barney, how was sermon? Oh, it was a great sermon today, pastor. Great sermon. Really? What was it about, Barney? And then he waits. Barney goes, oh, it was, a, it was about sin. It was about, it was about sin, right? The simple answer to what happened is sin. We messed it up. We chose our own way. We want to do our own thing. In Romans, if you've got your Bibles, turn back to Romans. I know I'm telling you to turn. That's two places. I hope you can handle it. All right. Romans chapter 1. Leave your finger. We'll be back to 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This isn't going to be on the screen. And so if you don't have your Bibles open or on your phone or anything, you just have to listen. But Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says, listen, people that are in midst of this aren't going to know the truth because they're acting in a way that is against the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in things that have been made. So they were without excuse. Verse 21 says this. For all they, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of the God for a lie and worshiped the served, the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26, for God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nation, nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is what God says. The reason we have such a problem in this area is this is that we have chosen to walk away from God's best plan. And it disorders our heart, and it disorders our thoughts, and we begin to think, well, maybe it is. Maybe in a loving relationship, homosexuality isn't that bad. I mean, at least they love each other. It disorders our desires, and it disorders our actions. And it leads us away from Him. And when we get to that point, the only answer we have for the mess we are in is Jesus. The only answer we have is Jesus.
1 Corinthians 6 says that He has purchased our bodies and has united us with Him. He bought us. He invested in you and me. He cared enough to love us to the point of paying the greatest price that has ever been paid in the history of the world. And if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He has bought your body. He has bought you. And you ought to glorify Him with it. And that takes us back to the original command in this whole thing. It told us to flee sexual immorality. Flee any sexual activity outside outside of marriage. And here's what I want to say to you. That means us. You see, the easiest thing for us to do is to look outside at the world and say, man, I am so glad I am not messed up like them. But the truth is, if statistics hold true, there are lots of messed up people in this room right now. If statistics hold true, according to Scripture, there are like 100% of us messed up. But statistics also tell us that in this area, the church is not really better than the world. In fact, um, I mentioned some statistics about pornography earlier. Um, I mean, most of you know that part of the Ashley Madison scandal that kind of raised it to the top was that a Christian leader, television star, was one of the first names outed as having an account. He he won't be the last, I'm sure. Fall from all that's coming. But according to to statistics, and this is one of those things kind of hard to gauge because most of this is done kind of in secret and in private. But according to statistics, in America, about 50% of men have an addiction to pornography. An addiction to pornography. Not view it every now and then, not looked at it once in the last month. That is an ongoing daily addiction to pornography, close to 50%. In the church, that number's around 40 I read something this week from the International Mission Board, and one of the things that it says is what is amazingly happening with our International Mission Board is the number of women that are applying to go overseas is almost doubling the number of men. And the International Mission Board president said that part of the reason he thinks that is the case is because we have so many of our guys in church that are wrapped up in pornography that they cannot do what God's called them to do. And if that's you, I don't, I don't, I'm not... I'm not under any impression me just telling you those statistics are going to make you go home and never do that again. But I do think that the power of Jesus Christ can. And before we start yelling at the culture out there, there is a log that is huge in the eye of the church that is preventing us from being as effective as we need to be. According to statistics, we're not as bad as the world, all right? If you look at statistics, there have been all those things in the past about um, that the church is just as bad as the world in every case. That is not true. But the numbers aren't encouraging either. It's not like, woo, we are 5% better in the world. We've only got 4 out of 10 of our guys addicted to it. And if that's you today, flee, run, get out. As a church, as a people of God, Got to learn to get away from this stuff. Ask God to open your eyes. There may be things in your life right now. Television shows, movies, stores you go into, places you buy from, things that you wear that you aren't even aware are a problem. And God wants to open your eyes to it. You have been so impacted by the culture. 
We ain't got time to go into all that because we, we would be here an hour and a half. But pray that God would show you. And so the central answer of this whole sermon for us is to flee, flee. So here's the second part, and this will be much shorter. So what do we do when we do see the culture around us just hurtling towards destruction? Four things. We'll be real quick. The first one is this. It is perfectly okay to be grieved about the degradation of marriage and God's gift of sex. I mean, honestly, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you heard the same-sex marriage decision and a part of you didn't grieve over the loss of biblical standards in America, then you need to be asking God to give you an understanding of what biblical standards ought to look like. I mean, it ought to grieve us that we are running from God's design. Secondly, I think it's right to be concerned about religious liberty in our country. You won't, we're not going into that whole sermon. The first one in this whole series was that. You can go back and listen to it online on our website or in the podcast. It's there. There's some real concerns. I don't want to be chicken little. There's some real concerns about... <laughs> I mean, people used to say this and you think, that's ridiculous. There's some real concerns about in years whether I'll be able to stand here without legal ramifications and say what I said a few minutes ago, that the homosexuality is a sin. There'll be some real concerns about that. Okay? And so I don't tell you how to vote. I don't tell you what political process to engage in. I think we ought to be involved in the political process. But I will tell you this. Vote, look for candidates for president and for state offices that have a record of and a desire to protect religious liberty. Here's the third thing. It is imperative to be loving toward our gay, lesbian, transgender, cohabitating friends and neighbors. We must be loving. We have no right as Christian people to bully or degrade or make fun of or laugh about or shame members of that community. Because we know, like everybody else, we're all a mess and the only answer is Jesus. That doesn't mean you that doesn't mean that you say this is all okay. But you love your neighbors. You realize I'm not talking about just people who live on each side of you, right? Like people. Um, we started this whole thing. If you've been with us through this whole journey over the last few months, we started this whole thing on counterculture with the story of a, a cake makers in Oregon. How many of y'all remember that story, right? The cake makers in Oregon, right? They got in trouble because they wouldn't cater a, a, a same-sex marriage um, wedding ceremony. Well, I saw something they did this week that I thought was just really cool. Uh, they made, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 cakes, and they put a heart on the middle of it and says, we just want you to know we love you. Okay? They partnered with uh, a guy in, Los, in uh, Los Angeles area, California, drove down there, took their cakes down there, and they then mailed those cakes, however many they made, 10, 12, 13, whatever it was, to 10, 12, 13 gay and lesbian advocate groups around the country and put a note in there that says, we are not your enemy. We want you to know we love you and that we pray for you. These people are people that are in threat of losing their business and thousands of dollars and yet are going out of their way to be loving. And here's the last of the four, I think. There it is. It's wise to be confident about the future. I'm not one of those people that gets a novel and reads the first chapter and then goes to the end of the book to see what happens. Anybody here do that? 
Yeah, okay. I don't do that. I think that's wrong. So you're wrong. Um, But when it comes to Scripture, I have read the end. And Jesus wins. And so we don't have to be cowering in the corner as society around us is enveloping us in their way. We know we win. And so we don't worry. We are confident in Christ. Because His ways and His love will win out. So how do we, what do we do with all this? Here's what I'll tell you. And then um, we're going to pray and Jeff's going to come. They're going to lead us. If you have sexual immorality in your life, repent and run from it. Pornography, flirting. If you're not in a marriage relationship and yet you are engaged in sexual activity, run from it. Flee it. Get away. Secondly, rejoice in and run to sexual activity in marriage. That's what God intended for you. There's a passage we didn't read in in 1 Corinthians where Paul says it's better to marry than to... Y'all know that? To burn, right? It's better to marry than to burn. What he's saying to them is if you can't control yourself and you're in a relationship, then think about marriage. Like, it's okay to marry. That's a good thing. Commit yourself to covenantal love and seek after God together. Rejoice and run to that. And then the last thing is this, because my guess is there are lots of you in this area, in this room that have blown it in this area. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. And just to be real honest, this is probably the most awkward invitation to come down to. Okay, so I understand that. I'm not saying that if God tells you to come, you you shouldn't come because you should. You obey God, not rather than man. But I understand the awkwardness. But can I tell you something? It doesn't matter how much you've blown. It doesn't matter how bad your life seems to have been. We serve a God who's in the business of forgiveness and reconciliation. And you have never done too much and gone too far to not be reconciled and made clean by God. And so maybe... For you, it's to accept His forgiveness. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus. You've never followed Him and you want to do that. And today is the day. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and even as you read that, you really, as we're reading it, you're like, I didn't want to come today because there's too much light being shown on the dark areas of my life. And today God is saying, today God is saying, be forgiven and flee. I don't condemn you to the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. Let's pray together.